So if you're in a European capital, I wouldn't put quite as much stock in the blank check comment as perhaps was in the immediate aftermath. There was a bit of an overreaction to it. I think people are going to be sitting in a recession and they're not going to write a blank check to Ukraine. They just won't do it. With those words, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy caused significant concern among European capitals and among foreign diplomats who feared that a Republican victory in the midterms would lead to diminished US support for Ukraine. The expected red wave didn't materialize for McCarthy and the GOP, and even as we recorded this episode, the House of Representatives had still not been called either way. However, the election results do raise important questions for Europe as it starts to think about how Congress, which is in charge of allocating funds for Ukraine, will approach the conflict under new leadership. In this bonus episode, Francois and myself discuss the midterms and its impact on Ukraine and the rest of Europe, as well as how France missed its moment to push for strategic autonomy in the aftermath of the Russian invasion. As always, please rate and review Uncommon Decency on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And send us your comments or questions, either on Twitter at UndecencyPod, or by email at UndecencyPod at gmail.com. Please consider supporting the show through our Patreon, uh, which you can find in the show description. Uh, we hope you enjoy this bonus episode, and we'll continue to tune in for more Uncommon Decency. So I'm excited for this. And we'll be talking about two conversations which both relate to what is going on in Ukraine. The first one is the US midterms and how that kind of changes the whole conversation on the other side of the Atlantic and the consequences it will have on Europe and Ukraine. And then I think another one which is uh, more EU focused is how, uh, how France essentially managed to screw its its opportunity at a time where security and defense issues were becoming central to EU conversations, how France managed to screw that momentum and seems more marginalized on those issues than it ever was before the conflict in Ukraine. So that's going to be another interesting conversation to have. Um, but yeah, June, why don't you get us started? Um, I guess we all have kind of a broad idea of what happened in the midterms, but maybe in a few words, what happened, who won, who lost? Um, what's the state of Congress after the midterm elections? Well, the short answer is that we we actually don't know who won yet because the House of Representatives hasn't been called. Uh, the Democrats will retain control of the Senate. The Republicans look like they're going to win control of the House of Representatives, but there are still a few races outstanding due to the way the US votes, which is heavily reliant on sort of postal ballots in a lot of Western states. Uh, historically speaking, the party in power, the president's party, loses seats in the House of Representatives. So a change in control was expected, although the margin of control, which I'll come back to later, uh, is not what had been anticipated by pundits and indeed by strategists on the Republican side who've been expecting to pick up a large number of seats in a, in a so-called red wave. Historically speaking, the party in power doesn't normally lose control of the Senate, so the Democrats retaining control is expected in some ways if you look at the trends. Um, but again, they were playing defense in a lot of competitive states um, with more seats that they had to defend compared to the Republicans. Um, and in a 50-50 environment, it was always going to be a challenge, um, but Democrats have managed to keep control of the Senate. Uh, it was recently announced that might actually expand their majority pending a runoff on December 6th in the great state of Georgia. Um, 
the Republicans had hoped to make sweeping gains on the back of inflation, which, as it has in Europe, has risen to record levels. Um, this has been by Republicans have put this squarely at the feet of the Biden administration for the uh, significant spending bills that have been passed by the administration, starting with the American Rescue Plan and then the Bipartisan Infrastructure Fund, um, the Inflation Reduction Act, which won't really sort of have any economic effects for a while, was also something that uh, Republicans had used to, to bludgeon Democrats with for spending too much and stoking inflation as a result. Um, although some people would point to loose monetary policy by the Federal Reserve, um, supply chain issues stemming from the pandemic, uh, and of course, the war in Ukraine leading to rising energy prices, although that isn't quite as significant in the US given its status as an energy producing superpower. Um, so the Republican argument was going to be centered on economics, and they wanted to make this midterm a referendum on the Biden administration. They weren't able to do that successfully uh, for a couple of reasons. The biggest was the decision by the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade is the Supreme Court decision from 1970s that codified the right to an abortion. Um, when that was overturned earlier this year, it generated a lot of grassroots energy and momentum among Democratic candidates who were able to put abortion front and center and abortion rights front and center for some of their campaigns and to paint Republicans as extreme on this issue. And abortion did come in as the second most important issue uh, among voters, according to some of the exit polls that we've seen. Again, it's still early, so we'll get more data as this comes out. Um, abortion being a central argument for a lot of a lot of voters in the United States. Um, the other reason they weren't able to was the role of former President Trump, who had pushed uh, a lot of uh, fringe, uh, more conservative, more extreme candidates in the primaries. And um, these were weaker general election candidates. This is something that Senator Mitch McConnell had warned about. He had seen the same thing happen in 2010 of extreme candidates winning primaries and then losing in the general. And so as a result, the Republicans uh, have lost their chance to take the Senate, might actually lose a seat given that they lost Pennsylvania um, and Democrats are favored to win in Georgia uh, based on the first round of votes. Although some people might query my suggesting that they're favored. But the Republicans might still take the House and that would make Kevin McCarthy the odds-on favorite to be Speaker. But there are certain complexities behind that that we can get into a bit later. And then the last thing I'll say is uh, there are also a number of governor's races. And with the presidential election in 2024, uh, governor's races can take on a lot of significance because it's an opportunity for candidates to run statewide and really lay a platform for potentially running for president in 2024. The most notable of the governors on the Republican side, at least, was Ron DeSantis of Florida, who won in a landslide um, in pretty much every marker. Uh, confirming that Florida is a solidly red state, at least under his governance, it's very much a solidly red state. And uh, that's very much boosted his chances of running for the Republican nomination. Um, but there are other governors who had strong campaigns as well. Chris Sununu on the Republican side uh, in New Hampshire um, had a very solid campaign in contrast to the Senate nominee who was a, a, a MAGA Republican um, who did very poorly. And then in the Democratic side, you have Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, who had a strong campaign leading Democrats to their best results in the state of Michigan uh, in quite some time, winning the trifecta of uh, the governor's mansion as well as uh, majorities in the state legislature. Just just an aside, it's something that always kind of strikes me is the fact that three, four days, sometimes a week later, um, you still don't know who's won the election. Um, and we saw that obviously quite dramatically following the presidential election, 
where it seemed that nobody knew what was going on for at least a few hours, if not a few days. Um, I, it just, it just, I just find it staggering that it, uh, you know, the, one of the biggest democracies, one of the oldest democracies in, in the world, isn't capable of processing electoral results in a quick manner because it opens the door for all kind of, all kind of mess, as we saw again um, you know, two years ago. Um, so that's just an aside. But Roe v. Wade was an important issue. The other one, which I think is directly relevant to the conversation today, was inflation. Um, inflation rising quite considerably, um, partly giving given to the geopolitical context, uh, partly giving to monetary policy, partly, I mean, there's different reasons um, going on, but for one that people connected it to was the war in Ukraine. Um, and this kind of opens the door for this conversation we're going to have here on what does this mean for America's support for Ukraine? Um, I mean, first of all, if we crunch the numbers, does, does this change much for the kind of um, parliamentary arithmetics going on, Julian? So in terms of how it affects Ukraine, the first piece that we should look at is at the in between now and the new Congress being sworn in in January, the National Defense Reauthorization Act, which is an annual defense appropriation bill. It passes every year with bipartisan majorities. Um, that will include some defense aid for Ukraine. There's also a budget bill that needs to be passed. Um, Congress typically alternates between doing a one-year budget or what's known as a continuing resolution, where they just agree to keep funding going for another month until they can figure out the big issues. Those are both on the table towards the end of this year, and the budget bill might include financial aid to support Ukraine, because that's the thing that the Ukrainian um, finance minister has been talking about, is getting economic support for the economy, which is expected to contract 30% this year because of the invasion. So those two bills towards the end of this year, which will be unaffected by the elections, will provide some short-term support to Ukraine. The issue will be in 2023, where it will be more difficult to get um, the bills just sort of out of the House of Representatives. Um, they can't originate from the Senate, it has to originate from the House. And if the Republicans are in control um, and on a narrow majority, it might be more difficult. Um, when you sort of look at Ukraine as a specific issue, the concern is that a lot of members on the sort of far right of the caucus who want to completely cut off aid to Ukraine because they actually support Russia uh, might wield extra influence over McCarthy um, if he were Speaker. I think this is somewhat overblown because the counterpoint to this is, yes, there is that far-right group, but the Democrats are still going to continue to support Ukraine. So McCarthy can count on a bipartisan bill. The Democrats will simply yeah. save them on that front. And within his own caucus, there are a lot of people who are very strongly supportive of Ukraine and a lot of new uh, members of Congress who will want to be strongly supportive of Ukraine um, and will want to differentiate themselves from those on the far right of the caucus. I'm not going to say their names to boost their brands for work reasons. Um, MTG, that's what I was saying. Yeah. Um, so there, it will be balanced out in that sense on the military aid. I think the thing that Ukrainians and indeed Europeans should look for that's a little different in this new Congress is that there will be Kevin McCarthy's comments that really caused a lot of concern when he said there wouldn't be any yeah. blank checks. Now, I think this has been somewhat misinterpreted. If you speak to people around McCarthy and if you speak to other Republicans on the Hill, what they want is they just want a bit of oversight in terms of the weaponry that's going to Ukraine. Yeah. Because if you sort of take it back four years ago, there was, or sorry, three years ago, the first impeachment was over withholding mm -hmm. aid to Ukraine. 
uh, under the Obama administration, there was a hesitance to give javelins to Ukraine, which Trump then did. Um, or was actually the thing he held up, which was the cause of the first impeachment hearing. Um, Ukraine still had a lot of corruption issues before the invasion. And a lot of Republican lawmakers would like oversight on the scale of the arms that are being sent to Ukraine. They would also like a conversation about how this affects the U.S. stockpile should the U.S. end up in a conflict in Asia or being drawn into a war in Europe. So those are the sort of conversations that Republicans want to have around Ukrainian aid. Um, it's just been inartfully phrased by Kevin McCarthy. Um, and I think Europeans should expect more sort of rhetoric that unnerves them, but the substance of what actually is uh, going to happen as it relates to the war in Ukraine um, isn't quite as drastic as they might fear. Um, let me, I have a McCarthy quote here. He said that a month ago on the 18th of October, I think people are going to be sitting in a recession and they're not going to write a blank check to Ukraine. They just won't do it. Now, I understand what you're saying, Julian, and there's probably going to be more oversight going forward because we're talking about a lot of money. The humanitarian aid, I think, is 40 billion so far. Um, or at least there was a, a big 40 billion bill that was passed uh, in the past few months. And the security assistance, according to the um, Secretary of Defense, has been over around 20 billion, I think 19 billion, something, something along those lines. So we're talking about kind of, you know, considerable sums. Um, and where I think you're... You're right, but also maybe um, I think I think you're, you're, there's something more going on as well here, which is he's making a political case as well, saying people are going are going to be sitting in a recession; they're not going to write a blank check. This is what I was talking about: you know, inflation um, going going back is economic conditions in America um, aren't as bad as they are in, in in most parts of Europe, but they're going to get tough. And the kind of pressure for 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 politicians to be doing nation building at home, to be spending that money back home, is going to get increasingly strong. I mean, there there is a case for it. I don't think that's one I'd be, I'd be making, but there is a case for it. Saying, um, you know, we we're not going to send money to Ukraine for the war to continue. We're just going to keep the money for ourselves and and spend that in the uh, you know middle America, which has seen um, underinvestment of the past twenty years, something along those lines. And you know, I think I think it's it's a case you can make, and obviously it's been made quite quite uh, forcefully on the far right, but also in some elements of a, of a kind of left far left. Um, you know, the, some some members of the squad have have made that case, and um, so the question I have is, um, is this kind of rhetoric going on simply for a campaign? No, McCarthy is. Um, a important figure of the Republican Party. It's it's an as much as support for Ukraine has been mostly popular. And on the right, it has kind of dropped a little bit. Uh, I've got a poll here, which was coming from the Wall Street Journal. Eighty one percent of Democrats support additional financial aid for Ukraine, compared to thirty five percent of Republicans. Almost half of Republicans said the U.S. is doing too much up from 6% at the start of the war. Half of Republicans said the US is doing too much. So we're, we're kind of seeing here a, a shift in the perception of this conflict. And so undeniably, I think McCarthy wasn't simply making a kind of accounting argument saying, oh, we need to make sure that the money's being well spent. I think he was making a political case as well. The question is how genuine was that political argument 
um, or was it just kind of campaign rhetoric? I am not sure yet. And McCarthy seems like a, a, a usually pretty moderate figure on those kind of conversations. Anyways, um, love to get your, your thoughts on that, um, Julian. It's not about the national campaign. It's about Kevin McCarthy's internal campaign to become Speaker of the House, the comments on the blank check. I think we need to really contextualize who he said it to and what he said. So he made those comments in an interview with Punchbowl News. Now, Punchbowl News is read exclusively by people in Washington, D.C. who track Capitol Hill very closely. That, it's, a very, it's an insider's insider's um, publication. So no one who is a swing voter in Pennsylvania or Arizona is making up their minds on who to vote for based on what McCarthy is saying. And I think that's really important to understand. He made those comments to shore up support within his caucus so that he can be Speaker of the House. To be Speaker of the House, you need a majority within your own caucus to be the nominee, and then you need 218 votes on the floor. And that's a you know congressional-wide vote. So the Democrats will vote against them, naturally, uh, and that means he needs pretty much every Republican vote. Now, there are a number of things that Republicans can, now that there's a narrow majority, that they can probably extract from McCarthy uh, in terms of concessions. And one of those things might be money on Ukraine. Um, I don't think that's the be all end all. There'll be a lot of other things. Um, people want him to endorse Trump. Uh, people want rule changes in terms of the role of the committee, Jazz. And I think that's something that might. So if you're in a European capital, I wouldn't put quite as much stock in the blank check comment as perhaps was in the immediate aftermath. There was a bit of an overreaction to it, um, I think. And you're going to see, especially if the rule changes in terms of restoring the prominence of committee chairs in originating legislation, if that's something that the Republicans actually do when they pass new rules for the House and the new Congress, then the people you're looking at really are the head of appropriations, which would be Kay Granger, head of foreign affairs, Mike McCall, and the head of armed services, Mike Rogers. Uh, those will be the key voices, and they've been pretty supportive of Ukrainian aid. And I think you can expect it to continue um, because those will be the people who will be playing the leading role in setting the Republican agenda uh, in that regard. And the last thing you know, I'll say is there may be pressure from the right to cut aid to Ukraine from the sort of pro-Putin part of the Republican Party. But equally, there are moderate members of his party who will want to continue to show support for Ukraine. There are a lot of um, foreign policy hawks who will be adamant about continuing support for Ukraine. And, you know, just to be frank, for the for the sort of fringe um, extreme MAGA caucus in that House Republican Party, Ukraine is not the hill they want to die on. Um, there's a lot of other stuff that they're really uh, animated about. I don't think Ukraine is the number one. Um, so McCarthy can easily uh, get out of a jam there and won't be quite as pressured on that front. So I think the blank check comment First of all, context is very important. Um, it wasn't for the national campaign. It was for his internal campaign. And then the real voices you need to look to are going to be the committee chairs uh, in a Republican-controlled Congress. Yeah. So I, I think we, we, we agree here that the short-term prospect of America no longer being able to um, fund Ukraine's war efforts is unlikely. But I think the question is kind of both medium-term and perhaps more long-term. Um Medium term, again, you said a lot, a lot of these bills will get passed before um, the new legislature comes in. And um, even then, even then, the, it's unlikely to see enough elements from the you know, far right wing of the Republican Party and who knows, far left wing of the Democrat Party. Enough of these people to actually significantly change America's policy on Ukraine. However, if we kind of continue this trend of, you know, um, you know, 
war fatigue uh, happening in America and people kind of losing uh, the reason, kind of no longer understanding why America is making um, such a strong support for Ukraine. And with kind of economic conditions worsening, we could kind of potentially see, who knows, and like in a year time, those conversations becoming a bit more difficult. Um, um, anyway, so I'd like, like to get your thoughts on that. Do, do, could you see that being a possibility, maybe not in six months, but like in a year's time, ne- next winter? Yes, absolutely. And I think it would be consistent with uh, really how the US Congress has viewed a lot of international conflicts in which it is not putting troops on the ground. Mm-hmm. And it's not quite the right historical parallel. Um, but during the second term of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, um, in the Second World War, in his election campaign in 1940, he was accused of dragging the US into a war in Europe. Um, and Lend-Lease Act that passed at the end of that campaign in the end of 1914 into 1941 had a lot of steep opposition um, from members of Congress because they saw it as the US involving itself economically in another war. There were still economic problems at home. Why should we be greenlighting uh, financial assistance uh, to Britain? Uh, it actually got worse when they expanded the financial assistance in 1941-42 to the Soviet Union. There was a lot of domestic opposition to that. Because Lend-Lease initially, you could say, well, this is about the battle for democracy against the forces of fascism. Um, When you started lending money to the Soviets, that went out the window. Now, not quite the right parallel here in terms of the ideologies, but um, in terms of giving support to Ukraine, absolutely, it's consistent with what you'd expect in the US and questions will eventually start to be asked. And you're starting to see this as well in terms of, and it's one thing we haven't talked about, we've talked about the Republicans, but on the Democratic Mm. side, there is a growing push from especially progressives to call for a diplomatic solution uh, and for peace negotiations between uh, Ukraine and Russia. And there was a letter that was issued by the Progressive Caucus, um, which is chaired by Pramila Jayapal, a left-wing member of Congress. She since has sort of disavowed the letter saying it was released publicly by mistake at a time it was written, which was back in the summer, Ukraine hadn't launched its counteroffensive and circumstances on the ground have changed. Um, but it still reflects the sentiment among those on the left that the US can't keep funding a war in Europe um, ad nauseum and it cannot um, continue to just sort of say this war will go until Ukraine is victorious. Um, but by putting this out in public, it's created a lot of pressure on the administration to reject those calls for a peaceful solution. The line out of the White House is... Uh, no solution in Ukraine without Ukraine. Um, Ukraine must be involved in that conversation. And then uh, on the right, you're still seeing some calls to sort of dial back the amount of funding that will go. And I think that conversation will become, grow in prominence, especially as 2024 draws into picture. Um, there is supposed to be an announcement tomorrow by former President Trump that he is running again. Um depending on what other candidates are saying on that conversation, he is obviously not as supportive of Ukraine as um, other members of his party are. So this will be an interesting thing to watch, um, especially in the last half of 2023 um, and moving forward into 2024. And then the last thing I'll say is that the funding bill that we'll get this winter would continue to provide aid through the spring. And then there would probably be a little bit of work in the spring on a sort of more longer term thing. Um, because the presidential campaign is going to start to distract from some domestic legislating. I think it, all of this really makes me think that we should have an episode on 
perhaps a Ukraine point of view saying, what does it mean for us if we get, you know, 20% of our funding cut? Um, how would we adjust to that? Well, in practice, what does that mean? It would be very interesting to see how this kind of international um, support has uh, allowed Ukraine to do things they probably wouldn't have been able to do in the first place. I think that'd be an interesting conversation. But um, let's talk a little bit about kind of long term. You kind of teased a little bit on perhaps the Republican Party because uh, it's not inevitable, but, you know, the politics in America are in such a way that usually at some point their party do, does end up getting back in power. And, um, um, you know, given that Biden doesn't seem very fresh to say, and um, elections are coming up in two years, there might be kind of a bit of trouble to kind of deciding who will be the Democratic candidate in all the kind of chaos, um, you know, you could see Republicans come back. And the question is, you know, it, it, it probably would be Trump, I think. I think Trump remains the most likely person to win the nomination, I think. Um, but then you have like people like DeSantis who have been emerging and actually feuding quite openly with Trump in the past few months. Um, Ron DeSantis is the governor of Florida for those who are not uh, terminally online like um, like I am. Um, and, um, and the question is, I think when Trump was elected, there was all those articles going on about how, you know, America was turning isolationist and uh, it was cutting off from the world and he criticized NATO and, 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 and it's America's UN membership and so on and so on. Um, in the end, actually, on the kind of um, multilateral front, Trump's presidency wasn't as disruptive as many could have feared. Um, there was, of course, um, America's removal of its COP um, commitments, the Conference of Parties on the Environment, um, there was the dismantling of the Iran nuclear deal, but generally Trump wasn't as disruptive and, you know, people were fearing that it could have mean the, um, the implosion of NATO, for example. If the question is nowadays, would a kind of Trump 2.0 would be much more aggressive on that front? Uh, he hasn't changed much on China and, you know, has been as aggressive as he has been before on China. So, he, he isn't going to turn completely uh, into a hermit kingdom overnight. I think there's still a desire for America to be a strong nation on the international scene. There's a clear des desire to kind of limit America's involvement globally to kind of a very narrow definition of its interests. And, you know, this is where the question of what does the new generation of Republican lawmakers look like? Um, are they, you know, simply... Uh, saying the line to make sure they stay in the good graces of the party and just turn increasingly kind of Trumpian, especially in its space? Um, or will, in the end, it kind of return to a... You no, know, the Republican Party has always been very much focused on making sure it remains a strong international actor. Um, sometimes the pendulum swung a bit too, too hard with the early 2000s with um, America's invasion of... Iraq, and we saw kind of a neoconservative takeover of a party. But anyways, how do, you, how do you see this kind of conversation going on in the next few months, next few years? Because it seems to me that the kind of isolationist drive that Trump really pushed and that was also there before um, following the Iraq war, could you see that progressively taking over the party and by capillarity at some point, reaching the high echelons of Republican decision makers. There's always been an isolationist strain within the Republican Party or an isolationist wing. And 
goes back even you know even to the 1930s um 1920s even you could argue with the presidency of warren harding and then coolidge being a reaction to the liberal internationalism of woodrow wilson and some of his other programs um so you know there's always been that strong isolationist bend in the republican party and indeed in american politics as a whole and there's an entire book on this that you can order um by charles cuption uh, called isolationism america's a history of america's attempts to shield itself from the world i think is the title so yes that isolationist strain will be strong the issue if you're thinking about it um if you're thinking about this from europe's perspective you don't need to be as concerned unless trump is the nominee again which is again not in any way guaranteed it's a, it's a long way out and i wouldn't make any predictions um the only other people who think about foreign policy who share that who think about foreign policy in the republican party who are running for president or will run for president either in 24 or in 28 who share that leaning are people like senator josh hawley um and you know, perhaps a few other members in the governor's mansions. You know, DeSantis hasn't really articulated a foreign policy beyond fairly traditional, traditional and conventional Republican talking points on opposing the or the withdrawal from Afghanistan and being pro-Israel. There's not really much else there that he's said. Among the thinkers who, among the people who put foreign policy near the top of their agenda, who are running for president, you have sort of Mike Pompeo, former Secretary of State, Mark Rubio, Senator from Florida. Nikki Haley, former UN ambassador and former governor of South Carolina. They all espouse fairly traditional uh, Republican uh, foreign policy views. And th- I think there's another element to this, which is when foreign policy does come up on the campaign trail, or at least this was the case under Trump. So Republicans have been bringing up the Iran nuclear deal as a way of essentially attacking Obama for being soft on terrorism. ISIS was also. Um, surging at the time. So that it was a, a way of tying Obama into a, a wider um, argument that he wasn't effective as a counterterrorism president. Um, with the attacks on China for trade and then on Europe as well for trade that Trump brought up, he was relating foreign policy worldviews back to domestic policy issues. So namely the idea that all these economic trade deals and all this um, US economic policy had sold out the American worker to countries overseas and we were being taken advantage of. There's probably, there's a, there are a few Republicans who would share that worldview. And that's part of what I'm, mean, you know, and President Biden, he's been very protectionist, much to Europe's annoyance. And there are Republicans who absolutely share that. While the establishment wing, you know, sort of senators like Romney um, would very much like to see trade open up and see a return to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, there aren't that many Republicans who would. So in some ways, Yes, it will be consistent, but it's not going to be as drastic. There's no one really out there who's advocating for a withdrawal from NATO uh, in the Republican Party. And even if you had a president who were, the fact of the matter is it's a treaty and Senate has an override over it. So there's so much congressional opposition to anything like that, that it just wouldn't really happen um, regardless of who's in the White House. There's something else which I think we need to talk about before we move on to our next topic on on France and the EU. But the fact that we we are seeing pressure not not only from you know people on the right of the Republican caucus and people on the left of the Democratic caucus putting pressure for a negotiated settlement, but also um, you know a very commented um, statement by um, General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who said that. Um, 
the Ukraine should actually use this kind of moment with winter coming to cement their gains at the bargaining table rather than um, keep pushing. Um, and it seems to kind of reflect a kind of internal debate within um, maybe the Biden administration, but kind of more generally the kind of foreign policy establishment in Washington about what should be the next step. So far, the line has been um, it's only to Ukraine, it's only for Ukraine to decide when to negotiate and will be supportive and the rest of it. We're reaching a point where theoretically there could be somewhat of a stalemate line in Ukraine. I'm, I'm not sure that's completely accurate, but let, let's go with, with, with the case, which is there could be a stalemate line right now in Ukraine uh, with the Dnieper River. Now that Kherson is taken, winter's coming, uh, I think it's going to be frozen or, or, or muddy and, and, and stuck and it will be very hard to manoeuvre and all the conscripts, why, why they may not be very useful in attack, if you just kind of uh, put them in trenches, they'll be able to slow down even kind of a motivated and experienced Ukrainian force. And you get, you reach a stalemate in that moment, negotiations happen. Um, so I think that kind of reflects, maybe it's not, the, it's definitely not the official um, Biden position, but it, it, I think it reflects to some extent that, um, the kind of internal debates. And apparently, from what I'm reading, especially in the New York Times, it seems that um, Biden's advisors currently think that the the war will be settled at some point through negotiations. and But the moment isn't quite here. And this is where I think the, the kind of stalemate argument saying, you know, we are going to reach a stalemate and um, the war will be, will be frozen for at least a few months, I think is somewhat inaccurate because my understanding is there's still momentum on the Ukraine side. Um, they've made those landings a little bit to the um, southwest of Kherson, um, amphibious landings, which seem to be quite sophisticated within massive artillery support. So my understanding is Ukraine still has some momentum. And this is where I think what's going on in America and, and Europe kind of changes strategic incentives for Ukraine, because I remember this conversation going on this summer where you know some of the military on on, on in on the Ukraine army would be saying um, we can't push on right now we are not ready we need more equipment rest of it and the politicians were telling them we may not have this support in six months time so you guys need to go for it and um, what vi- what what the conversation we just had um, might do in in Ukraine for example is say okay we for the clock is ticking. Who knows where support will be in Europe in six months or eight months or two years? We need to make sure we push now. And so I think I think the fighting will be quite fierce. If if they do lose momentum, then all of a sudden it will reach a stalemate for a few weeks, maybe a few months. Then all of a sudden the pressure, the international pressure for negotiations will be very strong and, and Ukraine will at least have to um, say they are considering it. But right now they have this momentum and they could not afford to lose it. It's like It's like, you know, you've got this this really small flame in your fire, it, it's snowing outside. You need to make sure by at all costs it keeps burning because otherwise you're, you're in a sticky situation. I find myself keep saying this, but I, I think we, we've got to take General Milley's comments with a grain of salt or at least add some context and perspective to them. So he, he's a general looking at the battlefield in Ukraine. And yes, Ukraine has made an impressive advance, but we're into mid-November now. And the chances that Ukraine can fully drive Russia out of its own territory, either by the end of the year or by next spring, um, 
before, you know, there will be a Russian counteroffensive at some point. Will it be next week? Will it be next month? Will it be next year? I don't know. But Millie's point is that, you know, while they have the momentum, they should consolidate their position to prevent a Russian counteroffensive. And part of that means talking to uh, the opposition. And that's not quite so outlandish a position. And the Biden administration was at pains to point out that Millie's words were not, General Millie's words were not reflective of the Biden administration policy, which is no solution in Ukraine without Ukraine. The Ukrainians have to be the ones deciding what's in their best interests and deciding on their own future. That's the central crux of this conflict. And the Biden administration will continue to have that policy. In terms of whether we'll get to, you are starting to see that push from people in the United States and within the Biden administration towards a negotiated settlement. And it's become, and it's coming from a, a an opinion or a recognition that short of an admission of defeat by Putin or a comprehensive sweeping battlefield victory, which is highly unlikely given the nature of this conflict, Ukraine is either going to be stuck fighting Russia for several years, um, slowly pushing them out of its own territory, or it's going to have to go to the table to find that solution. And the Biden administration recognizing the global costs of the conflict and the difficulty of keeping all the sanctions in place is probably, is, there are some people who are starting to push for those negotiations. That being said, there are also people on the other side of that argument who are saying, absolutely not. We need to keep up the pressure and this needs to be a comprehensive victory over Russia by Ukraine um, before any talks can happen and following the Zelensky red lines. Now, I've, I would just like to you know point out that you know a lot of the behind-the-scenes diplomacy has started to bear fruits, not only with um, grain shipments, which was the sort of big diplomatic success over the summer brokered by the Turks, but Zelensky himself has somewhat softened the negotiating position, saying that he would engage in talks with Putin. So Putin's removal is no longer a core part of the prerequisites for talks between Ukraine and Russia. So that's a somewhat that's a bit of an evolution. Um, in his policy, and that's reflective of some of the diplomatic efforts made by the US to change uh, his approach to talks with Russia. Um, so, you know, Milley, General Milley suggesting that maybe with winter coming and the conflict potentially freezing, although I don't actually see it happening that way, just again, given the way this war is being fought, I would be surprised there's a conventional uh, pause in the fighting uh, due to terrain and weather. Um, we talked about it last week. There are, there's a lot of use of sort of small small drones and small arms, and that will continue to be the case. So even with talks, you'd still have fighting going on in the background, which would somewhat temper any prospect for a peaceful solution. But you know, then again, there was a peace deal agreed in uh, in Tigray um, just last week. So anything's possible. Yeah, 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 exactly. There's a tight balancing act going on uh, because it's not only, it's not only, the question isn't only we don't want to be looking like we are pressuring Zelensky to to accept negotiations. It's also not giving a signal to Russia that um, America is willing to, to curtail um, Ukraine's support um, on the opening of negotiations, in which case, Biden will just kind of wait. Uh, sorry, Trump will just uh, Trump. Jesus, Putin will just wait wait things out. There is kind of a logic to war as well, 
which is that peace settlements only really happen in kind of two scenarios. Either one side is kind of decisively beaten or you're reaching kind of point of mutual exhaustion where war can't go on. Um, and it seems to me that we are in neither of the scenarios right yet. Um, and you know, if you want to kind of, a, especially kind of a, a lasting peace settlement, usually you need one of these two conditions. And so my understanding is we are we are nowhere near exhaustion yet, sadly, and we are nowhere near decisive victory yet. So I I don't think we are going to have serious peace negotiations for um, a while longer. No, I, I don't. I don't think so either. And um, I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, you are seeing this push. The Economist, I think, has recently called for Ukraine to start to think about negotiations, although it shouldn't compromise on its red lines. Um, there is there is war fatigue, and especially for the people of Ukraine, who are ultimately the victims in all of us. There are the ones suffering on the front lines. They're the ones dealing with blackouts um, as Russia continues to target power in the country. Um, and at some stage, talks will have to happen because short of a comprehensive and decisive breakthrough, it can only be ended at the negotiation table. The nature of the negotiations is the subject of an episode in and of itself. Um, but, you know, that's, that's, I think, something we'll start to see more of in 2023. That brings us to the end of the standard edition of the podcast. If you'd like to hear more from Francois and myself, we would go on to talk about strategic autonomy, French diplomacy, and how France missed the moment when it came to cementing strategic autonomy as a policy initiative in Europe following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, that's all available in the Patreon uh, edition of the podcast, which you can subscribe to for just five euro a month. Um, so if you'd like to hear that conversation, I encourage you to subscribe. It also opens you up to lots of extra content we'll put together, including extended interviews uh, with our guests in our regular editions of the podcast. But for now, thank you very much for listening and take care.